God, we thank you for this moment where we get to gather uh, as a church. Lord, we thank you that every person in this room is here because of your sovereign plan. Lord, no one is here this morning by accident. No one is here just by happenstance, but they are here because you brought them here for a reason. And so God, I pray for, uh, Lord, the message this morning and for this word to be plain. God, that you would give us your spirit to lead us into understanding, to, to give us wisdom to discern how to apply this text. So God, would you, would you help us uh, Lord, to, to experience this text, to have the, the type of understanding that leads to transformation. Uh, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. I want you to raise your hand uh, for a moment if you have ever taken an etiquette class. Anybody taken an etiquette class? Okay, some of us have, okay, maybe not uh, the majority of us, which probably uh, explains why our churchwide pitchins are how they are. Uh, I'm just kidding. Um, but one of the, one of the th- which are coming back, by the way, so August, our upcoming member meeting, we're gonna have a, another you know, a pitch in and bring those back, which are always a fun time. But one of the things that I'm told that you learn during an etiquette class is how to properly set the table. Right, you learn um, proper table uh, manners. And I think that this is becoming a lost art, and I'm guilty of this as well, but in our fast-paced culture where you know, we're running from one thing to the next, we, we tend to rely on, on fast food. And uh, when I say ch- uh, fast food, I mean Chick-fil-A, right? We're Chick-fil-A people here. And, and really the only time that we focus on etiquette is we're thinking about how many Chick-fil-A sauces we're allowed to get and, and still stay you know, socially acceptable, right? Uh, but one of the things that is so interesting about the etiquette class and learning how to properly set the table is how many rules are involved. I looked this up, I looked at the the Victorian dining experience and there are dozens and dozens of rules. It's almost overwhelming. Like not only uh, do you have what seems to be like a thousand different forks kind of laid out there and they're all supposed to be, you know, uh, very specifically laid, you know, with the the spoons and the knives, but but there are rules about, you know, the, the order that you're supposed to eat the food in. There are rules about how to hold your napkin, how to fold your napkin. There are even rules about how to cough and sneeze properly at the table. Like, it, it's crazy. Like, if you, if you wanted the opposite experience of a Victoria dining experience, just stop by the Beals house around dinner time, and you're going to see a borderline zoo taking place in there with three small kids. We've got food flying everywhere. People can't sit in their seats for more than 12 seconds. Silverware is optional, even if we're eating spaghetti. It is very, very chaotic. Well, when we come to our passage this morning, uh, we notice the Apostle Paul who is giving instructions to this Corinthian church on proper table manners as far as enjoying and partaking of the Lord's Supper. And the reason for this is because the Corinthians' experience of the Lord's Supper was very chaotic, even sinful. And so Paul has to give these instructions on on how to properly set the table in order for them to experience the Lord's Supper, this church ordinance properly. Now, one of the things I wanna point out is that Paul does not give dozens and dozens of rules like a Victorian dining experience, but he does give 
a few important guidelines that I think will be very applicable for us uh, this morning. Here's the first guideline that I wanna point out as far as setting the table properly in experiencing uh, the Lord's Supper. The first one is to remove sinful uh, obstacles, to remove sinful uh, obstacles. This is in verses uh, 17 uh, through 22. Guys, if you could advance that slide uh, for me, Carter, just for a moment. Uh, Beginning in verse 17, uh, we are reminded that Paul, Paul is giving instructions here to the Corinthian church in the context of when the church is gathered together for worship. In fact, if you notice here, there's a phrase here, come together, that's mentioned five different times throughout this passage. This is a term that's used to describe corporate worship. And if you notice here, and you probably have picked up on this theme, all throughout the Corinthian church and and, and this letter, Paul is not concerned about trying to get the Corinthians to come together to worship. The main concern, and especially here in this passage, is what they do when they come together for worship. It's how they worship. Paul says in verse 17, that when we as believers, when we gather together for worship, it should be for the better and not for the worse. It should be to encourage us and to exhort us and to unite us. Look, can I just be blunt just for a moment? That cannot be true for you unless you are physically gathering with the saints on a regular basis. Look, we can say what we want to say about the Corinthian church. We can call this church a beautiful mess with all of the issues that they had. But one thing that we do not see throughout this letter is Paul exhorting them to come together to worship. No, they were already doing that. And so the the challenge for us when we see this phrase, come together, come together, it's for us. And I'm kind of preaching to the choir since you're here this morning. This might be for people who are tuning in online in their PJs. The, the, The call for us is to come together to worship with the saints on a regular basis. And I say that this morning out of a spirit of love, not, not as a guilt trip. And, and I hope that this doesn't sound harsh. I, I mean, when you think about having a, a trainer, if you're working out and you've got this trainer and, and your trainer notices that you are missing training sessions on a regular basis, if you have a good trainer, a loving trainer, what's that trainer going to do? he or she is going to call you to come back and to, and to actually come and, and work out, come to the training sessions. This is for you to be as healthy as possible. And so my call for us this morning, this is out of a spirit of love, not to be judgmental, not guilt tripping, tripping you this morning. I certainly do not wanna be legalistic today and, and give you a number out of 52 Sundays that you need to be here. But look, at the very least, you should be here on Sundays more than, what you, than, than when you are missing, at the very least. In fact, maybe to even challenge some of us today, you should have a greater priority for coming on Sunday morning than you do in making Johnny's soccer games or baseball games or going to the lake. In fact, when, when you compare the, the level of priority, the level of intentionality, when you have all of these other things going on in your life, do you prioritize meeting with the people of God on Sundays? Is that the highest priority when you're mapping out your schedule? Because look, we're all busy. 
We, we all have things going on in our lives. We live in a very, very fast-paced culture. But when you are busy, one of the last things that should go is gathering with the saints, the people of God on Sunday morning. And here's why. When you gather with the saints, there are spiritually shaping realities that go on when you regularly are with the people of God that you cannot manufacture or reproduce otherwise. There are things that happen in this room on a regular basis to your, that are shaping your soul that you cannot get just by listening to a podcast or by tuning in online. That in the singing of the saints, in the proclamation of God's word, in the encouraging fellowship of being with God's people. And really, the, I mean, look around. The physical and tangible reminder that you, follower of Jesus, you are not alone. That no matter what happens out there in the world, no matter what trial you are facing, no matter what kind of suffering you are experiencing, when you come here on Sundays, you are reminded that you are part of a church family, that when you gather, it is for the better. It's to encourage you and not for the worse. And I say that this morning because this is a place of solace. This is a sanctuary type experience compared to what you might experience throughout the rest of the week. But, but for the Corinthian church, that was not taking place. That's why Paul has to say this in verse 17, when you come together, it's actually for the worse. And the reason why that's true is because of the sin that was taking place in this church. If you notice in verses 18 and 19, they were acting divisively. Verse 21, they're acting selfishly. Verse 22, they're acting carelessly. First notice verses 18 and 19, Paul brings back this issue of division and factions within the church. Now, these are different divisions than what we saw earlier in the letter in chapters one, two, and three. That had to do with tribalism, where they would pick their favorite church leader, Paul, Peter, and Apollos, and they would kind of divide around those individuals the division that Paul calls them out on here is centered on the different socioeconomic groups that existed out in the world, out in Roman Corinth, that they were dragging inside the church that was taking precedent over their identity and oneness in Jesus. Now, here's the situation that was going on in Corinth. See, in the early church, what they would do is they would gather for worship and before they would take the Lord's Supper, they would experience a common meal together, what's been called a love feast. You see this in Jude verse 12. And this love feast, it was just a common meal, but the aim of it was to experience the unity and the fellowship and love that they have for one another. But when you look at verse 21, according to Paul, the problem was is that they were acting selfishly because those who were wealthy they had the ability to come early to these meals because they didn't need to work as late or they didn't need to work at all. And they would bring with them the finest food and drink and they would overindulge. Compared to the poor who had to work later, they would show up late and most of the time they wouldn't bring anything at all and they would go hungry. That's why Paul has to exhort them in verse 33 to wait for one another before they partake of this love feast before the Lord's Supper. 
Now we're starting to see, as, as far as setting the table properly, we're starting to see the danger of not removing sinful obstacles before partaking of the Lord's Supper. See, Paul calls them out on this. In verse 20, he says, you think you're partaking in the Lord's Supper, but this is not the Lord's Supper at all. In other words, this is not what Jesus had in mind when he first instituted this ordinance. And in verse 22, Paul almost can't believe this is happening. He's beside himself. He has four rhetorical questions, one after another, because he can't believe the Corinthians are acting this way. Now, why? Why is the apostle Paul so bent out of shape about what's taking place here? Paul is so heated at this because they were allowing their worldly identities to override their identity in Jesus. That their use of the love feast and the Lord's supper resulted in the complete opposite effect than what Jesus intended. Think about it for a moment. The very activity that was meant to ground their unity and to express their unity in Jesus was being used as a place where their divisions were expressed. Like the very activity that was supposed to eradicate their differences, eradicate their divisions, was now a place that was exasperating them. And it's because they twisted this ordinance from being about Jesus and being unified in Jesus, and now it's being used as just another worldly way of expressing their own importance. So Paul is saying, look, you might be carrying out the ritual physically, but there's evidence in your life that shows that this is not sinking in. And so for us, as we think about setting the table in order for us to do that properly, we must remove all of the sinful obstacles. And we'll get to the vertical dimension of this, of us and the Lord in a moment. But I think here specifically, this is more of a horizontal of our relationship with one another. We tend to unfortunately think about the Lord's Supper as if it's this individualistic experience. It's me, Jesus, and the elements, and that's it. You know, I just get in the zone as I prepare my heart. But no, there's a, a corporate reality to this experience. As we prepare our hearts, we think and we consider, do I have sin with anybody in this room? Do I need to confess my sin? Do I need to repent of any sin that I have horizontally with someone else within the family of God? That's how we set the table properly, to remove sinful obstacles. But secondly here, the other guideline that we see, and this has a, a vertical dimension to it, we are to remember the Savior's ordinance. Paul now in verses 23 through 26 reminds them of how to rightly partake of this ordinance. And what he does is he actually takes us back to the first night that this was instituted by Jesus himself. Jesus is just hours away before he's crucified. It's the night that he was betrayed. He's in the upper room with his 12 disciples. And in these verses, there are all kinds of things that we learn about this ordinance. It was not only instituted by Jesus himself, but it's one of two church ordinances along with baptism. Okay, and what we see from even chapter 11 in 1 Corinthians is that this ordinance is meant for the people of God. This isn't meant for people who do not follow Jesus. And this is also meant to be taken place when God's people are gathered 
together. That's what's happening here in chapter 11. This again is not meant to be an individual experience that you do detached from gathering with God's people. Now, while the New Testament does not prescribe how frequently we are to partake of the Lord's Supper, some churches do it once a year, some do it once a quarter, some do it monthly, some do it every week. I think the point is, is to do it regularly. So at Pennington Park, we do this once a month. We're doing it here this morning. Now, how do we understand the elements, right? There are all kinds of different views on the bread and the cup. Now, while we reject the Roman Catholic view, which is called transubstantiation, which they believe that that the elements literally change into the body of Jesus and the blood of Jesus, and while we reject Martin Luther's view, which is called consubstantiation, which they believe that in the elements, Jesus literally and physically resides there in that space, in the elements, we do believe that these elements, the bread and the cup, are symbols that point to the reality of what Jesus has accomplished on the cross. And by correctly remembering and meditating on what Jesus did accomplish, we are able to experience Jesus through the Spirit. Okay, so, so when we take the bread, which, which represents the body of Jesus, and in fact, some churches have a, a loaf of bread, and for them, they, they would actually tear off a piece of bread and give it to somebody because that is to symbolically picture the tearing of Jesus's body, the the immense pain that he went through in order to bring our forgiveness. The, The bread is to represent the body of Jesus. And then we take the cup, which in some churches has wine in it. Other churches have juice like us, we've got juice. And that's to represent the blood of Jesus that was poured out for our sins. And when we take these elements, what we are saying is that this is not some sort of dead, lifeless, religious activity that has no impact on me right now in this moment. That's not what we believe. We believe that by rightly partaking of the Lord's Supper, it's meant to move you. It's meant to connect you with Jesus in a very unique way. Can I just confess something to you this morning? As a pastor and as a follower of Jesus for years now, and I've taken countless Lord's Supper meals in my lifetime, I have to confess to you that there are moments in which the Lord's Supper simply just becomes something that I do instead of an act of worship. I can fall into that trap. I've done this hundreds of times in my life, I've taken the Lord's Supper and so easily it can just become this ritual. And I don't know if you can relate with me on that this morning. I don't know if you have those moments where, where you come in here and, and you see the elements on the chair and, and you think to yourself, man, I, I'm just not feeling it today, whatever that means. And so you almost use that mindset to let you off the hook from engaging with Jesus. Or maybe you think to yourself, man, do these elements do anything at all? Is this just some religious exercise? I mean, the bread tastes lousy anyways, and I'm gonna have that bad aftertaste for hours until lunch. Like, like what is this all about? Or, or I wonder if, could it be that, that this is just something that you do because perhaps you come into this space with your heart and your soul so filled up with the things of this world that you're not hungry 
for this spiritual meal that Jesus wants to feed to you by his grace. Like, and, and if that's true for you today, if you can relate to any of that, then, then this morning our hearts need to be open to really the exhortation that this passage has for us today to bring Jesus back to being the center of this ordinance, that Jesus is actually the host of this meal. Jesus must be the focus. In fact, your experience of the Lord's Supper should be one where after you experience it, you should walk out of this room with a greater love and a greater worship for him. And, and in my prayer, my hope is that we all would want that today. And, and as we walk through this passage, I'm gonna show us four steps to actually experiencing the Lord's Supper in that way as we now kind of partake of uh, the Lord's Supper. Here's the first thing that we need to do is we need to remember. We need to remember by looking back. If you look at verses 24 and 25, we, we see this theme as Jesus was instituting the Lord's Supper. He says it twice. He says, do all of this in remembrance of me. Now, what are we to remember specifically. I think we're to remember really anything about Jesus would be helpful, but I think specifically here in this moment, we are to remember that Jesus did something for us on the cross that none of us could have done. That Jesus made a way through his death and three days later through his resurrection, whereby our sins can actually be forgiven. And look, it's all of our sins can be forgiven. That in this moment, as we remember and reflect on, on the work of Jesus on the cross, we remember that every single one of our sins can be forgiven through the blood of Jesus. Let me press this this morning because I don't want this to become just something that, that, that you know up here, but I want you to experience this reality deep within your heart. The forgiveness of sins that are available to you includes all of your past sins, the sins that you are ashamed of, the, the sin that, that fills you with such guilt, even those sins God can forgive. Like those sins that, that, that have tried to define you all of those years, those sins can be forgiven. Look, look all of your present sins, the, the sins that you committed this weekend, can be forgiven through the blood of Jesus. Look, even your future sins, the sins that you haven't even committed yet, God can forgive you of those sins through the blood of Jesus. Look, even, even the sin that you're thinking about right now in this moment that you're saying to yourself, no, 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 pastor, not that sin. Surely he cannot forgive me of this sin. That, that sin is too great. That, that sin is too shameful. There's no way that God can possibly forgive me of that sin. Look, yes, even that sin, God can extend his forgiveness to you in Jesus. See, when we come to this table, we are reminded that there is no sin too great for God not to forgive. We come to this table, we preach to ourselves, we say out loud the four most life-changing words there are, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are 
forgiven. All of them. Your secret sins, the shameful sins that you've done, those evil deeds that you think, no way, yes, all of them can be forgiven through the blood of Jesus. And we come to this table, we, we remember that, and we bathe in the grace that God has made available. Now how? How is that possible? It's because of what Jesus has done. It's because of what the scriptures say. I mean, think about 2 Corinthians 5, 21 for a moment. It says that he, referring to Jesus, who knew no sin, meaning Jesus is completely perfect, completely righteous, no sin in him at all. And yet that verse says that he who knew no sin became sin for us. Meaning, as Jesus is hanging there on the cross at Calvary, as he's dying in your place for your sins, taking your penalty, taking your condemnation, he, he absorbed all of the wrath of God for you as if he committed it. He's hanging there, becoming sin for us. The verse says, so that you might become the righteousness of God. Meaning, if you place your faith upon Jesus, God takes all of your sin and all of your shame. He takes all of that and he puts it on Jesus on the cross. And in exchange, he gives you his perfect righteousness. He gives you his blamelessness so that when God looks at you, he doesn't see your sin. He sees you hidden in Jesus and he accepts you. That, my friend, is salvation. And when we come to the table, we remember that glorious moment of Jesus who comes to us and he takes our spiritually dirty clothes of sin, those clothes of shame and guilt that, that have been weighing on us so heavily. He takes them off of our shoulders and instead he gives us his own clothes. He gives us new clothes. He gives us righteous clothes. Look, that is what we remember had the opportunity this week to host a Backyard Bible Club. And uh, if you don't know what a Backyard Bible Club is, this is, I think, one of the best things that we do as a church as far as personal evangelism. And just, just a reminder, our, our vision at our church, we, we think about church like an airplane where we've got these two wings and, and one wing is evangelism and the other wing is discipleship. And, and a church, you need to do both. And we believe that the gospel is the engine because the gospel is powerful enough to do both. And yet most churches kind of lean one way or the other, and yet we want to do both really well. Well, Backyard Bible Club is a, is a great way to engage in personal evangelism with the kids in your neighborhood. And, and we were hosting this this week and had our small group who, who came and they served. And, and there was one night where after we talked about Jesus, we broke up into small groups and I had six or seven kids in my small group. And these are kids who live on my street who I've, I've taught how to play kick the can and four square and, and all the, I've invested hours with these kids and we're talking about Jesus. And, and one of the kids raised his hand and he says, what, what would happen if Jesus didn't die? Beautiful question, great question. And, and so I answered that in terms of the fact that because we have sinned without Jesus, we deserve hell. We deserve eternal separation from God. And his eyes get real big. Everybody's eyes get big. And, and then I talked about, again, the grace and the forgiveness that's found 
in Jesus. And, and in that moment, we got to pray. Three of them prayed for the first time to receive Jesus. These are kids who never heard the gospel before. They're unchurched. And in that moment, to have like the spiritual light bulb go off for the very first time is so moving. Like to, to watch like in the moment, a heart become flooded with grace for the first time is unbelievable. Like, do you remember that moment for you when grace just flooded your heart for the first time? Do you remember how sweet that was? Look, when we take the Lord's Supper together, we are to drown our hearts so deeply with his grace that it's as if we are hearing about grace for the very first time. As we take the bread and we take the cup, we slow down. We take this spiritual, sacred, holy pause. And just how fast our cultures, we slow down for a moment and we remember and taste grace. It's amazing. Jesus, he could have used a different word. He could have said think or no. He chose remember because when you remember something, what do you have to do? You have to slow down. And as we slow down and we remember what Jesus has done for us, we think to ourselves, Jesus did this for me. The, the creator of the universe died for me, a sinner, a wretch, in order to bring forgiveness for my life. And so we remember and we look back. Well, that's the first thing that we do. The second, I think, important step in enjoying the Lord's Supper together is we actually look ahead. We proclaim, verse 26, Paul says that as you partake of the Lord's Supper, you are to proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, until he comes, that's an important phrase because one of the issues that we've seen in the Corinthian church had to do with their understanding of the last days, the timing of the last days. They, they thought that they were living fully in the kingdom of God. And so Paul reminds them with that phrase, hey, he hasn't come back yet. You're still to proclaim his death. And, and as the church, as we gather together, as we take of the Lord's Supper and we proclaim what Jesus has done, that is shaping us as a people that we're saying, look, he hasn't come back yet. This is not the end. What you see is not the end. When he does come back, he will make all things new. And I love this, this piece about proclaiming the Lord's death as we gather, because I think this is to shape what we do throughout the week as individuals. Like as we gather together, we proclaim the gospel, we proclaim the Lord's death, but as we scatter throughout the week and as individuals, as families, we are to proclaim the Lord's death. We are to remind ourselves of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we proclaim and we look ahead to when he will return. So we look back, we look ahead. Thirdly here, we are to look within. We are to look within and examine. Verses 27 and 28. If you grew up in a Baptist church, you read these verses and you kind of tremble a little bit. Well, Paul does give here a sobering command. He, he wants us to make sure that we are partaking of the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner. And the way we do that is by examining ourselves, testing ourselves. But let me be clear this morning. Notice, Paul says to not do this in an unworthy manner, 
not unworthy individual. All right, Paul is not concerned about whether or not one deserves the Lord's Supper or one is worthy enough to partake of the Lord's Supper. Paul is concerned here about how you are approaching the Lord's Supper. If you have indifference towards God in your heart, if you have unrepentance in your heart towards the sin that's in your life, that this is a moment in which you are to ask yourself heart-level questions about your posture towards God and his grace, about your posture towards the sin that's in your life, the posture towards other believers in this room. I heard one person say it this way, that if one is afflicted with sin, the Lord's Supper provides comfort. But if an individual is comfortable with sin, the the supper is affliction. That I think on one hand, that this is the the time to refrain from the Lord's Supper is when you find a hardened apathy in your heart towards God. Like that's true on one end. But on the other hand here, Paul is calling us to examine ourselves, not to find reasons why we are unworthy, but to find evidence of a repentant heart, to find evidence that grace is working. See church, look, we we need to understand something this morning that when God reveals sin in our lives, that is an act of mercy and not judgment. That when God, through his spirit, is taking sin that was hidden, that was concealed, that was in the dark, and he brings it into the light and reveals it to you, that is an act of his grace and mercy. It would be a judgment to keep that hidden and for that sin to continue to cause damage in your own life. So look, if you are approaching the Lord's Supper and your sin has been made known to you and you come with a repentant heart, this table is for you. Come, to the, that, that's the invitation. Come to the table where there's grace for the sin that's being revealed in your life and the sin that you are repenting of. Look, we... We are not to examine ourselves to look for perfection. We are to examine ourselves to look for a recognition of our need for Christ and his grace. That as we come to the table, this table points us to the only remedy for our sin, which is the cross of Christ. Look, this table is not a table of condemnation. This is a table of grace, and we come and we feast upon Jesus and all that he's done for us. And then finally here, the last, I think, important step that we see in this passage. So we we look back, we look ahead, we look within, but we also look around. This table is also meant to unify us where Jesus is the host of this meal and, and through what he has accomplished, he gives us an objective unity among God's people. And as we partake of the Lord's Supper, we live out that unity that he has already created. And so despite the differences we might have, despite the the diversity, when we come together as a unified people, we are reminded that we have the same Lord, we have the same Savior, Jesus Christ. And so the call here, again, is, is to repent, to confess any sin that we might have among one another's horizontal repentance because this table is meant to unify 
at the, one of the churches that I served at before coming here, I, I saw this lived out in a very powerful way. Uh, I was serving at, at a church and, and there were these, these two guys that, that were running for office and, and they were very vocal about it. They were trying to get uh, people um, to vote for them and they were very active on social media. They even came to the pastors and they asked us to pick a side and, and it was creating a lot of tension b- between these two individuals. And we were even wondering, do we need to step in and, and provide a means of reconciliation? Well, we were doing communion one morning and we actually used this passage. And before the elements were taken, we saw one of the guys, he actually got up he walked over to the other guy, put his arm around him, whispered something in his ear, and they left the sanctuary. They went outside. Now, I, I thought, honestly, I thought, man, they're going to brawl. Like, they're, they're, they're going to fight. They're gonna, it's going down right now. But a few minutes later, they came back in, and they had their arms around each other, smiling, and they were able to take the elements together and sing together that morning. Now, look, I, I don't know exactly what they said to each other, but I can almost guarantee you this morning that they said something to the effect of, look, we might have our political differences, but we are unified in Jesus. We are one in him. We have the same savior. And I think this table speaks to the unity that we ought to be experiencing among one another despite any differences that we may have. I love how D.A. Carson puts it. He says very bluntly, that the church is made of natural enemies, that what binds us together is not common education, common race, common income levels, common politics, common nationality, common accents, common jobs, or anything else of that sort. Christians can come together because they all have been saved by Jesus Christ and owe him a common allegiance. They are a band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus's sake. And this table points us to that reality. Well, as I close this morning, I don't want to overlook this severe warning that I think stands out in this passage. Verses 30 through 32, we, we notice kind of Paul's call to examine ourselves, to make sure that we are properly partaking of the Lord's Supper. And this clearly was not happening in Corinth So as a result, we do see God disciplining this this church in obvious ways. Paul mentions the illnesses and even even the deaths that took place. This was an expression of God chastising the whole community. Look, this speaks to the real consequences that exist when we fail to approach the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner. And let this be even a warning for us as we Think about how to set the table properly, how to enjoy Jesus in this meal, that we do so by looking back and remembering, by looking ahead and proclaiming, by looking within and examining, and looking around and unifying, and most importantly, to slow down, to not rush the preparation and the enjoyment of the Lord's Supper, to take this holy pause, and and as we do, Let me remind you that Jesus Christ himself took a cup 2,000 years ago as he was hanging there on the cross. This cup that Jesus drank was a symbolic cup, but that cup was filled with the wrath of God. And Jesus on the cross, he drank every last drop in that cup of wrath so that you, Christian, that there is no more wrath left for you. And so, Come to the table. 
Come and experience grace. Don't hide your sin. God already knows it. Come and confess and experience the grace that's found in Jesus and Jesus alone. So we're gonna take the elements in just a couple of moments. We're gonna have a, a song uh, to sing and, and just to continue to help aid and prepare our hearts. I'm gonna pray and then we will prepare our hearts together. God, we thank you so much, so much for Jesus. We thank you that through Jesus, we can experience forgiveness. We thank you, God, that we could not on our own save ourselves. We, we cannot come up with enough good works. Our, our own church attendance cannot do it. Only through the blood and the righteousness of Jesus. And we thank you, God, for the Lord's Supper, this, this monthly practice that we have here where we are reminded of something that only Jesus could have done. So God, I pray that you would protect our hearts from this just becoming a ritual, but I pray, God, that you would impress in our hearts the reality of grace that's found in Jesus. So God, help us to enjoy you in this moment as we prepare our hearts. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.